Welcome to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get help and guidance through the chaos of parenting a child with anxiety or OCD. This show is for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the guidance of a qualified professional. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. Today, I want to talk to you about health issues with your kids, health anxiety, health OCD. We're going to go into it all and everything in between. And this can be your child is, you know, getting hooked on the fear that they're sick or they're going to have a disease all the way to worrying about their breaths or their breathing or their heartbeat to things like, am I going to choke? So worrying about your health can really be a pretty big, broad topic and theme for kids with anxiety or OCD. And to help me discuss this matter, I've brought back Dr. Dawn Hebner, who I love having on the podcast because first of all, she is churning out these incredible children's books on these very specific themes. And we are going to talk to her about health, anxiety, and OCD, and also her new book, Facing Mighty Fears About Health, and discuss what's in that and how that can help kids between the ages of six and 12, six and 10, but I actually think it can help kids even older than that. So I love talking to her because it's like, you know, you guys get kind of like you're a fly on the wall listening to two therapists talk about these issues and how to help. And I hope that that helps you. Before we get started, I want to thank NoCD for sponsoring this episode. NoCD offers affordable, effective, convenient therapy. They are available in the U.S. and outside of the U.S., and to schedule your free 15-minute consultation to see if NoCD is a right fit for you and your child, go to treatmyocd.com. That is treatmyocd.com. Link is in the show notes. If you have Aetna and you've talked to NoCD in the past, you might want to call them back because they are accepting Aetna now as well, along with a lot of other insurance companies. So check with NoCD to see if they take your insurance because that's a beautiful thing, right? Okay, I want to dive into my interview with Dr. Don Hebner. I hope that you find this helpful. I know you will. And without further ado, here is my talk with her. Well, I want to welcome back Don Hebner to the show. Thank you so much for coming on again. I love talking to you. I love talking to you too. And I feel like we should take this on the road. <laughs> you become like a frequent guest and people have really appreciated it. They've said that these episodes have been really helpful and you're your books that are coming out are really helpful. So I'm glad to have you back to talk about a new theme. We're going to dive into health anxiety today, which again, you're hitting on all the really common themes. I think that a lot of parents want to hear about. Let's just roll up our sleeves and dive right in. Let's talk about, can you explain to parents what is health anxiety? So health anxiety is excessive concern about the way the body is working. So um, kind of over-focus on whether things are working correctly, whether things are working right, and whether they're going to continue to work right. So kids often get worried about, what if my heart stops beating? What if I stop breathing? What if I choke? What if I die in the night? What does this bump on my wrist mean? What's this rash? You know, it's kind of noticing things about the body and worrying that they mean something dire. And typically there's a component 
of assuming that they do mean something dire and either seeking reassurance about it or wanting to do something about it. You know, go to the doctor, check against a list of symptoms, have a parent, you know, check and assess. So there's kind of a, you know, needing confirmation or needing proof about whatever it is that the child has noticed. Yeah. And I wonder how parents can differentiate what is maybe typical versus what is now maybe in the category of concern when their child is worried about their health or hyper-focused on their bodily functions. Yeah. So I think that if the concern goes on and on, you know, is long lasting rather than brief or momentary. And if the child is not reassured by a straightforward answer. So, you know, I sometimes talk about there's a difference between information-seeking questions and reassurance-seeking questions, right? So with information-seeking, the child is genuinely looking for some information. They're trying to understand something. And whatever information they're given, the child's satisfied with that because they were just looking for information. With a reassurance-seeking question, there's a quote-unquote right answer. You know, there's the question that the child needs to hear in order to feel okay. And often they need to hear that reassurance or that answer over and over again. They're not really looking for factual information. They're just looking for reassurance. And so when kids are repeatedly asking reassurance questions that have to do with their health or their bodily integrity, I think that's a red flag for parents. Yeah, it's a great way to differentiate because it's that that drive is not being satiated. You know, they're not they're not feeling good about your answers. And so it's like that frustration that parents might get like we just talked about this or you're asking me now in a different way or you know, right. so definitely a red flag that you're not getting that that solution fixed. Right. And there are times that kids have a genuine medical condition that they need to learn how to manage, right? So a child with a food sensitivity or allergy or with asthma or with diabetes, right? And those kids might ask a lot of questions about their health and about how their body is working. And kids with those medical conditions can have anxiety as an add-on, right? So, um, you know, there's a genuine need for them to have information and to understand how their bodies work. And then there's there's sometimes sort of a plus piece that happens where it turns into a phobia or even OCD, you know, where kids are needing to kind of complete this cycle of having the concern and needing reassurance or needing to do some kind of behavior around their concern in order to feel relief. I'm glad you brought that up because that wasn't really on my radar to talk about. And that's really an important piece because I have seen that in the kids I work with too, where the parent will say, well, they do. They genuinely, they have to carry an EpiPen. Like they do have right. like a really scary food allergy or, you know, they do have celiac disease or they have, you know, asthma or diabetes just because they actually do have literally this medical issue doesn't mean that they can't have anxiety or OCD around that. And it's opportunistic, you know, right. especially OCD. So it will take whatever material it can use. Yes, that's right. And, you know, sometimes the parents need support in understanding what out of what you're seeing is related to your child's medical condition and what is the anxiety add-on and how do you differentiate between those two and how do you make sure that you're not accommodating the anxiety or OCD piece of this? Right. Because the intuitive response would be, let me just give my child reassurance. You know, my child has a peanut allergy and they're asking me 
does this cotton candy have peanuts in it? You know, like something that seems pretty obvious or they're not wanting to sit in the cafeteria at all, not even at the Mm -hmm. peanut allergy table because they're just, just in case. Right. So I think you're right. Like parents can get into that quicksand of like, let me just tell them that they're okay or let me accommodate that. And it can balloon outward. Right. Right. And so, you know, there's a question to be asked about the size of fear in relation to the actual danger, right? And sometimes there is real danger. Kids with a food allergy, there is real danger, but still the fear can be oversized. And again, you know, there's often a parental piece, understandably, where the parent is anxious also, you know, trying to figure out how to keep their child safe or manage whatever the medical condition is. And then the child's anxiety plus the parent's anxiety ends up leading to an awful lot of accommodation that makes the anxiety worse, as you know. Yeah, yeah, completely counterintuitive. So I want to dive into, I read your book, I reread it this morning, because I always do that when I meet with you, Facing Mighty Fears About Health. And again, I loved it. You know, this is part of your Dr. Dawn mini series, which is touching on a lot of different fears. And I, we, there's just nothing out there that speaks directly to these specific themes. Um, we covered emetophobia, fear of animals and insects. And this one also, I was like, the wording is so good because I know I read it through my children's lens. Uh-huh. And think, oh, this is like so good. I need to show this to my 18 year old. <laughs> I'll talk about that in a minute, why that is. But I feel like the language is just so specific to what I see, even personally, my kids dealing with that no other book really hits on and kids need to be spoken to directly, you know, because I think otherwise they feel like, well, this book isn't for me. It's not mentioning my specific struggle. Right. And that's really where this series came from is that my books that are more general books about anxiety, I was finding that some people were having trouble figuring out how to apply them because they didn't necessarily use, you know, a particular child's symptoms or or manifestations or focus of their anxiety. And so people couldn't really figure out how to apply the techniques. And it's the same techniques that we use. It's the same skill set. It doesn't really matter what the content is, but to parents and children, it matters. You know, it, it of course it matters. And so they need to help figuring out how do you take these skills and apply it to this manifestation of anxiety or OCD. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's, It's great that you said, you know, the skills are all the same. The approaches are the same, but, you know, for a child to read, this is my problem, you know, and I, I would hear that a lot, like, well, they didn't mention my struggle. And so, and if it's one of the embarrassing or taboo themes of OCD, they feel like, you know, I shouldn't bring that up. I mean, a moral Mm -hmm. OCD like book from you would be amazing. Uh Not enough out there on that one, but I think just for them to resonate and kids to say, oh, she's talking about me, even though the approaches are the same. And I think for parents too. I mean, I get frustrated to be honest when parents say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I read all that, but how do I handle it with health anxiety or how do I handle it with moral OCD? And you're like, plug and play, you know, it's the same thing. Uh But, you know, I think the personalization definitely does help. So I wanted to talk about, because when I read your book, I was like, you know, as my OCD therapist brain was reading it, I was like, this is all OCD, you know? And I know it's called health, health anxiety. You talk about it being health anxiety. I know a lot of the parents that listen to me are very much in the OCD world. Mm -hmm. So I thought we could talk about semantics a little bit, just because I know that will come up when someone reads this book. What is Mm -hmm. the difference between health anxiety and OCD? 
and you and I were kind of just talking about it like briefly. And I'm like, let's just have an organic conversation about it on, you know, live. Yeah, it's a good question. And I don't, I don't necessarily have a real answer to it. You know, I was thinking in terms of phobias when I was writing the series, but there's a lot of overlap between what a phobia looks like and what happens with OCD, where a child is afraid out of proportion to their actual danger. And they try to do something self-protective to both to protect themselves and to help themselves feel better, to quiet their fear. And that's the same loop that we see in OCD, right? There's a there's an unwanted thought, a scary thought, an anxiety in response to it, and then the urge to do something to both protect and relieve. It's the same loop, really. So I'm not sure what like how it is that someone would get an, a, a diagnosis of health anxiety without also having a diagnosis of OCD. Yeah. What, what, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I, that's what I was thinking too. I mean, the, the approach and your steps in the book are all beautiful and they're exactly what an anxiety or OCD therapist, you know, would want a child to do, you know, I think, and that's why I don't want parents to get hung up on that. So for starters, right. And also I think it makes it more generalized because there's a lot of people, unfortunately, who don't know how to diagnose OCD or spot it or think their child has OCD. So I think the book is good in a general way. And I know I get into this argument with my daughter, actually, that's why I thought it was kind of funny. So because she's 18, you know, and so I have three kids and my 10 and 12 year old are, you know, they're diagnosed with OCD. They're okay with OCD and her, and she's okay with having social anxiety disorder and panic disorder, you know, and all that. Mm -hmm. But when I start to say you have OCD because her predominant issue currently is health. So this was like Uh a really funny topic. She will argue with me and she'll say, no mom, it's anxiety. And she checks expiration dates. She checks her body so much to the point where I ignore real things. You know, she had a rash recently and I like, it took me three days to actually even look at her skin because I kept saying, you're fine. Just see what it looks like tomorrow. You're fine. She has like, you know, Mm -hmm. eczema. But she will say that's not OCD. And I don't, I mean, it's splitting hairs. Honestly. Right. Yes. Yes. Because I think there's a compulsive nature to health anxiety in general. Right. There is. And exposure is the way to go. Right. So not accommodating and doing exposure is the way to go, whether you call it anxiety or you call it OCD. And so when I work with clients, you know, for insurance purposes, the diagnosis needs to be accurate, but I'm more focused on what's going to be effective. And it's clear that exposure is effective, whatever we call it. Right. And that is really the main thing is that the approach is, it's good no matter what solid. I do feel like sometimes sensory motor OCD can kind of blur into health anxiety too, when you're hyper-focused on your breathing or your blinking or with my daughter, my youngest daughter, her bladder, it's a similar hyper-focus. So I think sensory motor OCD in some ways can, can overlap too. So I don't want to spend the whole time talking about this, but I do want to just highlight that so that parents don't like email me and say, wait, I think, you know, my child has OCD. Maybe they have health anxiety. It's like, you're going to approach it the same. And that that's really what matters. So let's dive into that. Let's talk about approaches that parents can take. Yeah. So I think it's important for kids first to 
have an understanding of what happens in their brain, right? So we want kids to, to know that there's a part of their brain that's always trying to keep them safe. And for kids that are, you know, five and older, I name it. So, you know, that's the amygdala that's always on the lookout for possible danger and trying to keep you safe. And I think it's important to normalize that, to talk about how that's actually really important and good that you have that part of your brain. But sometimes that part of your brain makes a mistake. And it alerts you to danger or it makes you think that there might be danger when there is no danger. And so everybody needs to learn how to distinguish between actual dangers and false alarms. So that's just kind of laying the groundwork. If instead a parent tries to dive in and just reassure their child that you're not going to stop breathing in the night, that's not the way breathing works, or you're not going to choke, you know, that food's small enough that you can swallow it. Like if the parent is just focused on the content of what their child is afraid of, it doesn't give the child any framework within which to understand why it is that they're going to move in the direction ultimately of having the parent not answer all these questions or the child starting to challenge whatever it is that their their anxiety or their OCD is telling them to do, right? So I always start with that kind of general education or giving kids a framework. Right? I love the educational piece because I think that's a, that's a piece that's missed a lot and it's it's not missed in your books. You always start with, all of your mini series starts with education. And that's the piece that I think sometimes we miss so that we like as parents say, oh, I'm not supposed to reassure, or I'm supposed to not provide this education piece anymore. I'm not supposed to do this, this, and this, but the child doesn't fully understand themselves why they shouldn't and what's actually happened happening physiologically with their body. Right. Exactly. So once your child does have the educational piece and you understand it too, I think parentally it's important to get it too. Then what's the next step from there? So then I think we want kids to understand that when they respond to what are essentially false alarms by their amygdala, as if they were actual dangers, they're keeping the problem going. And so, you know, we need to do something different from that. So that means that uh, the child needs to learn to, to not pay attention to what their anxiety is telling them or not obey what their anxiety or OCD is saying and to purposely be kind of stopping what I call safety behaviors in OCD language. That would be the compulsions, right? To purposely stop doing those to kind of teach their or help their brain better make those distinctions between real dangers and false alarms. And so it's a matter then of making a list essentially of what are the compulsions or what are the safety behaviors and coming up with a plan for how to begin to chip away at them. And, you know, you typically can't stop all of them all at once, but you can systematically work at reducing those behaviors. So if there's a child that is worried that they're going to get sick in the night and always has to sleep with a bucket right next to their bed in case they end up getting sick, you might work on moving the bucket further away. Or if there's a child that's afraid that they have swollen glands and, you know, maybe, maybe it's strep throat and needs to, you know, check their glands or have their parents check their glands many times a day or have their parents take their temperature many times a day. So you're looking to like intentionally and systematically reduce a combination of the OCD and move away from the compulsions or safety behaviors. I think it's really helpful too for kids to see that listed out because I sometimes they may not even be aware. A lot of times they're not even aware that those are compulsions or safety behaviors. And I think even as parents, 
not to assume what those are, you know, really having our kids empower our kids to do these things. I know with my son who has a choking, he's, I mean, it's definitely in the OCD category. I mean, cause his mm-hmm. food can warp into, it looks like a cartoon to, I'm going to choke on it to like, you know, so really bizarre thoughts mm-hmm. too. The Cheetos are alive. I mean, it can go really bizarre, but mm-hmm. I said to him, like, you know, we talked about what are his compulsions or safety behaviors. And he listed things I had no idea about. He talked about taking drinks that help him not choke. Wouldn't have known that, you know, the spitting out was obvious because it was piling up. So that one was obvious, but he also added extra sauces to his things. Oh, to lubricate, right? Yes. And I had no idea. I mean, I got that he was over chewing, although I couldn't really tell to what degree. And it was super severe where he was almost G-tubed. But when he was listing these things, it became very clear to both of us that these were now on our radar. So I love that. I think it's super helpful to list those out. Yeah. And, you know, it can be tricky for children because if the child is afraid that if they kind of fess up about a behavior, that they're going to be barred from doing it. If the child is afraid of that, then they're going to have a harder time listing their compulsions, their behaviors. So I think we really do want children to participate in listing the behaviors that they notice that they're doing to try to help themselves feel better. But it's important that the child also understands that it's not as if they're immediately going to be asked to stop each of those things or forced to stop each of those things that, you know, we really need to go in a measured way and give kids a say in which of the behaviors they're working on and at what pace they're addressing the compulsions and and things of that sort. Yeah. It's such a good point because parents can get a little overzealous and like, I have these tools, I know how to help and not recognizing that the pace has to be, you know, aligned with where the child is at and otherwise they are going to shut down. Right. And there are also um, two pieces. And I, I think that sometimes parents do the first of these and forget to do the second, right? So there's, how do you manage OCD or anxiety when it comes up? right? So a child is eating and suddenly they get concerned that they're going to choke and you're in an OCD moment and you have to figure out how to manage it. So that's one side. And then the other side is intentional practice. So you're, you're trying to provoke OCD or anxiety to give the child practice in not accommodating it. And it's really important to do the latter of those also. So you're not just waiting until a child is in an anxiety moment or in an OCD moment to try to get them to practice, but you're kind of intentionally doing things with a child, you know, intentionally doing things to try to trigger the OCD or anxiety so the child can practice not capitulating to it, not accommodating it. Yeah. And that, you know, I call that offense and defense, you know, so Uh, like, you know, You have to have that defense, but also that offense is really helpful. Can you talk about what some exposures might look like for various health, anxiety, or OCD issues? Sure. So uh, let's just stick with choking since that's what we've been talking about. We'll do that one first. So often kids who have trouble choking uh, don't eat certain foods that they're worried they can't chew finely enough or they might get stuck in their throat. So it's making a list of foods that are being avoided and gradually reintroducing those foods. Often kids overchew, as you were mentioning with your son. So reducing the amount of chewing, they often overdrink, um, you know, to try to kind of wash food down. Some kids don't eat solids. So, you know, you have to kind of see what it is a child is currently doing to try to keep themselves safe, quote unquote, safe, and then just add those behaviors back in. 
For something like being afraid of stopping breathing, uh, kids are especially afraid of stopping breathing in the night, like while they're asleep. Um, and often they seek reassurance around that. So one exposure would be removing the reassurance conversation um, that a child might want at bedtime. Often children want a parent to sleep with them um, to keep them safe in the night. So an exposure would be having a child sleep more independently, fall asleep and stay asleep alone. Lots of health and anxiety involves checking. So kids, you know, going online to look for symptoms of certain diseases or disorders or asking a parent to run through symptom checklists. And so you would be reducing the number of times that you're doing that, reducing temperature checking, going to the doctor. Yeah. And those are great. You know, I think the two things that I hear parents struggle with and they're kind of two separate ones. So we can talk about them. Like one kids say, what if it's real this time and you're ignoring me? And two, that like barrage of questions, especially with like kids who are stuck on, like, do I have this disease or there's lump? You know, I'm thinking about those parents because I get a lot of questions about that where they're asking me nonstop and maybe they don't want to work on it. Or they say, no, no, this time it's real you know, and if I ignore it, then something bad's going to happen. Right. So I, I think that we want parents to understand that the recommendation really is never to ignore your child. It's just that you want to understand what they're saying in a particular way, right? Um, you know, to, to understand that this is coming through the lens of OCD or anxiety rather than a health concern that is dire and urgent. And so I think it's possible to still work on systematically reducing the amount of reassurance that you're giving about something or the amount of checking that you're doing. And if a child says, um, you know, what if it's real or this time it is real, I think parents can talk to their kids about OCD craves certainty. Like OCD is always going to come back with the question of, are you sure? Right. And we can never be sure about things. So we don't strive for certainty. It's sort of a, you know, a false trap that we fall into sometimes with OCD or anxiety, the feeling that we need to be certain about things and we can't be certain, right? We can't, we can't, we just can't. So I think that, you know, we want to help kids learn how to tolerate some amount of uncertainty in the service of reducing the power of OCD. Yeah. And I know at my house, a lot of times I'll say, because we've already labeled it, we've done all the things you've talked about, but we'll just say, well, let's see what it looks like tomorrow, or let's see what it looks mm -hmm. like in two days. And then we'll see, you know, and having that delay of sitting with that discomfort, because you're right. I mean, so much of it is uncertainty and they want you to tell them, I'm not going to throw up. We talked about that in our podcast about emetophobia. Right. And my like, you know, flat response is always, you may or may not throw up because we can't right. guarantee that we never know. She never right. does, but you never know. But right. that tends to help my daughter, not to always use my personal examples, but it just helps uh -huh. my 18 year old her rebuttal when I'll say you're checking expiration dates is mom, but sometimes I find some that are expired. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. Right. You know, as so I think sometimes our kids try to rationalize their way out of these things, which can be tricky for parents. Right. And so, you know, you might talk to her about, first of all, an expiration date is a suggestion. So it's not as if the food is immediately bad on the expiration date. One of the exposures actually for kids who check dates like that is to intentionally eat food on or even past the expiration date, 
right? To, so that they can learn that the anxiety that they feel isn't linked to the amount of danger that they're actually in. Yes. Really well said. It's like the disproportionate amount of danger they're feeling. Right. And I used to save like expired potato chips <laughs> to put them in my mm-hmm. office. Cause it's like an easy one to practice on, you know, cause they, right. I don't know why potato chips expire. It's just like, they're not going to taste as good, but you know, yes. Yeah. And I think it's important for parents to validate that the amount of distress that their child is in, right? They're not in danger, but they are in distress, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't want parents to be dismissive of the distress. We want parents to be supportive, right? I understand that OCD is making this hard for you, or I understand that your anxiety is just tormenting you right now. I know that's really hard. And I know you can use your tools or I know you can tell OCD no on this one or whatever, but we, we want parents to be empathic with their kids because the distress is genuine. Right. And it's good to highlight that because I do feel like sometimes when you get these tools and you're like, okay, this way I'm going to approach it. I think sometimes it's easy to see it in black and white terms and not realize I can still, uh, I'm not ignoring my child. I can still validate their emotions and the pain that they're having. And a lot of times it's, the physical pain is real. You know, yeah. my daughter, she really feels, and I actually have this too, so I totally get it. Like that bladder feels full. Mm-hmm. It like genuinely feels full. You know, where that stomach ache is genuine. It really does hurt. Or that headache is manifested and it does hurt. And so I think sometimes when we're trying to help our kids and we say, it's just your anxiety or it's just your OCD, it can devalue the physical pain or sensation they're actually having. Right. And I think one of the things that can be helpful for kids with health anxiety is to talk about kind of differential attention. So when we have health anxiety, we tend to be overly focused on the way our body looks or feels. And one of the activities I often do with kids at the very beginning of therapy is we sit quietly for a minute and I'm asking a child to to pay attention to three different sensations, three different things they can feel. So it might be, I can feel the hair on the back of my neck. I can feel my waistband around my waist. I can feel my toe at the end of my shoes, like sensations like that. And we talk about those things. And then we talk about before we did that activity, you weren't aware of any of those things. Like, you know, those things were still happening, but you didn't pay attention to them because your brain had decided they weren't important. Right. And so with health anxiety, there's often something similar that happens that our brains kind of zero in on some physical sensation and start to tell us that matters, that means something bad. Right. And so it's not that you're not having the sensation, it's that your brain is misinterpreting it, is telling you that it means something when really it doesn't mean anything that you need to be concerned about. Yeah. You do a great job explaining that in your book too. I feel like that really walks kids directly through understanding that hyper-focusing. I love that exercise that you do. Cause I feel like that really, I think experiential stuff, you know, having kids experience what we're trying to teach them can be so powerful. Right. And um, we want kids to feel like, you know, to, to not feel aberrant. And a lot of what kids are experiencing when, when they have OCD or anxiety, it's, it makes sense given the way our brains work or, or what's going on in their brain. And so I want kids to kind of have that knowledge that, okay, this makes sense. It's not, you know, I'm not just a weirdo or there's not something terribly broken in my brain. This is the reason that, that whatever I'm feeling is what I'm feeling. It can be motivating because if I understand the science behind it on some basic level, 
then I understand why I'm doing what I'm doing to help with that. So that's really helpful. Can you talk a little bit about your health book, the facing mighty fears about health? So this is part of a series meant for kids between the ages of six and 10 or 12. Kids will be capable of reading on their own, but it's going to be most effective if a child is reading with a supportive adult. And the book walks through an education piece about how bodies work and how this alarm system works in our brain. And then it teaches kids some very specific exposure-based skills. And an additional feature of this book and all the books in the series is something called Fun Facts that are these additional like sort of add-on little factoids um, about the topic of the book. So in this book, the fun facts are about bodies. And it's things like, just like we have unique fingerprints, everyone has their own tongue print or, you know, talks about how high blood would squirt if it was left out of the, you know, let out of the body, it would squirt as tall as two giraffes standing, you know, one on top of the other's uh, back. So just kind of factoids about the body. And that's to add interest to like to keep kids engaged. And it's also a form of exposure. So uh, having kids kind of think about their body, um, some kids feel sort of freaked out thinking about blood or thinking about the way things work on the inside. So it's interesting. And it's also a form of exposure. I was thinking that when I read it, you know, and your fun facts, which I do love, because I'm always like, really, that's interesting. But I felt like, ooh, that's, that's going to be anxiety producing for some kids to read. And I think it's good for parents to hear that's intentional that right. these, this, these books are not only educational and prescriptive in the way to help yourself, but they're also another tool for exposure. Cause even right. my daughter who's 10 and almost 11 is very sophisticated, you know, so she wants to read older books or, you know, watch older shows. I give her these books because they are fantastic exposures for her, you know, to right. read about the topic that she's really concerned with, like the emetophobia book, that's just a walking exposure for her. And yes. so- that's like an assignment I would give her, read this book. And then the benefit is that she's actually learning some tools or being reminded of tools. And the health anxiety one reminds me of that too. I feel like just reading about your body. Cause I know in my practice, when I start talking about the body, a lot of the kids with health anxiety or OCD will be like, stop talking about that. Right. You know, yes. They want to avoid all of that. Yes. And there's a note to parents and caregivers in the back of the book that um, gives tips about how to use the book, including with kids that have trouble talking about the topic at all. And just, you know, doing it a little bit at a time and reading some of the fun facts and things of that sort, going slow with it. Yep. Love them. I love them. And what are your plans moving forward? You have Yeah. So there are three more coming out in the coming year, Facing Mighty Fears about baddies. So various kinds of bad guys. I'm just finishing Facing Mighty Fears about making mistakes. And then there's going to be one about separation. Ooh, that's exciting. Oh, I mean, if you want to, you'll have to come back on. (laughs) You might be getting sick of me, but I love, I love these. These are fantastic. So I will leave a link in the show notes for people to be able to check out your books and your, your Amazon website as well. And thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Nice to talk to you. Well, I hope that you found that helpful. I think sometimes just listening to people talk about how to approach health anxiety or OCD issues can be really helpful to kind of prompt you to think, oh gosh, okay, I should try to try to approach it this way. Or even some validation of like, I'm not alone. Oh my gosh, that's happening at my house. So if you want to check out Dr. Don Hebner's books, 
please do that. I left a link in the show notes. Um, The one we're talking about is called Facing Mighty Fears About Health. But also, I would look at her whole series. They're called Dr. Dawn's Mini Books About Mighty Fears. And we have covered them on the podcast. There's one on emetophobia, the fear of throw up. There's one on the fear of animals and insects. And there's one on handling change. And so those are all really good ones along with this one. I hope you're enjoying my podcast. I hope you're finding it helpful and informative. If you are, don't forget to hit a star on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you consume your podcast. If you leave a review, you know I greatly appreciate that. And to show my gratitude, I always like to end reading one of them if there's a new one that pops up. And so I want to thank Your Mama Rocks for having that name (laughs) because I love it. But I also want to thank her for writing a review. And she wrote, Natasha is such a blessing to me. I am so thankful to have found this podcast. It truly makes me feel like I'm not alone in the battle with trying to help my child. Natasha, you give me the courage and motivation to keep pushing my child to outsmart her anxiety and OCD. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to write that. And I'm so glad that I'm there to support you and give you the courage and motivation to help your child because we all need that. And I'm glad that that is what this is serving for you. So if you have something nice to say, maybe I'll be reading your review next time. I hope that all of you find the sparkle in everything you do. And I actually mean that very sincerely because without sparkles, oh, you want to hear something really funny really quick before I leave. So my son is partially in like the gifted program at school and guess what they call it? They call the sparkle group and they're doing like an after school thing. And it's like the sparkles or something like that. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's like my tagline. (laughs) It's like my motto for life. And I love it. So I thought that was kind of funny. All right. Well, I hope you find the sparkle in everything you do. And I will talk to you again next Tuesday. Take care. Thank you for listening to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. To get additional support raising a child with anxiety or OCD, visit Natasha's online school of on-demand classes at atparentingsurvivalschool.com. 